this particular week is a real turning point in the five books of Moses, in, in, the, in the Torah. Uh, this particular week is, is, a real, uh, is a real turning point. Uh, and uh, even in the songs uh, that we were... Uh, that we sang uh, uh, today, uh, you know, really speak of uh, following God and, uh, you know, the power uh, of, of his power guiding, uh, guiding and leading us. Uh, you know, we sang a song from Psalm 46. Oh, come behold the works of the Lord, the nations at his feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars. Uh, to cease. O mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. You will lead us through the fiercest battle. Oh, where else would we go but with the Lord of hosts? Uh, And so, you know, that kind of reminds us, uh, A, that there are battles to fight, Right? We wouldn't need uh, a psalm like that or a song like that if there were no battles. Uh, if it was all just a bed of roses, we wouldn't need to hear anything like that. No one would pray like that in the Bible, but certainly they do. Because as we know, just from being alive, uh, right, uh, that life is filled with left turns and right jabs and hooks and all that kind of, uh, all that kind of thing. But God promises uh, that he uh, is with us, uh, that he will be uh, with us always. So this week, our Torah portion is at the point in history where the Israelites have been at Mount Sinai, uh, and now they've been there for a long time, but now it is time to move on. Now it is time to go to the promised land, to, to actually make the journey. Okay, uh, and because you, you know the story, right? I mean, uh, uh, the children of Israel, they come out of Egypt, right? And over a couple of months period, uh, they are journeying uh, to Mount Sinai, and they are just learning how to follow God. I mean, they're just learning how to follow God. Much like a person when they come to faith in Yeshua. Uh, you know, when I, when I uh, came to know the Lord, <laughs> I must have called... Uh, my friend Roy, uh, who led me uh, to Messiah, I must have called him over and over and over again. Is it okay? Is this okay? What, what, what do I think about this? Or what, you know, now that uh, it's like this, like crash, crash change in worldview, <laughs> you, you know? And of course, he kept saying to me, relax. <laughs> All right, relax. Just, just keep going, you know, uh, you know, read the Bible, stick with the program, stay on the road, and, and you know, it'll, it'll be, be okay. And so that's what uh, the Israelites were learning when they came out of Egypt, right? Uh, they, first, they, they were afraid they were going to die. They were afraid they were going to starve to death, right? Uh, and God listened to them. Here now they had a king who actually listened to their needs and met those needs, right? And then they come to Mount Sinai, and wow! I mean, uh, it's the big wow, right? It's uh, God manifests himself on the mountain. We've talked about this. God manifested himself on the mountain that he made himself real uh, uh, to them as a people on the mountain. Uh, And not only that, but he gives them this great gift of a way of life, 
this great gift of a way of life. Uh, which said boundaries, like, you know, here is the best, here is like the, the way of the Lord, and here are like the little rumble strips on the side of the road, right? Like, you don't want to, you know, when you hear that sound, make sure you get back on the road, right? Uh, or the little reflector lights, you know, uh, along the road. So, so he gave them the Torah uh, so that they would have a way of life. Uh, and of course, the, the the Torah way of life, as we like, as we like to say, right? Then not only that, it wasn't like, uh, all right, hurry up now, leave. They stayed there for a long time, for months and months. They stayed there for basically close to two years, okay? Uh, and uh, they were learning all this time. They were learning about how to how to walk with God, uh, how to be free from Pharaoh. Uh, how to not live this, the way of life that they had been living. They had lived in it so long, they didn't know any different, you know? And so now this was a crash course in how to follow God, right? And so now uh, they're, they're getting ready to go. And as we saw uh, in the last couple of weeks, they learned uh, the discipline of like where to stand and how, uh, you know, in relationship to the ark, uh, and their identity, their identity as a child of Israel, and the role that they play uh, in this journey and in this people. Uh, and then God gave them admonitions about what to do in case of sin. And then he gives them this fantastic vow that they can, they can have uh, to have the intimacy that any Israelite, any man or woman, could have the intimacy with God as the as the priest or even the high priest without having the office of the high priest. That was the Nazarite vow, right? Any Israelite uh, could engage that and have that kind of intimacy with God. And it wasn't really a hard vow either. We talked about that last week. And then, he t- then not only that, when he gets done saying to them, any man or woman who enters this great vow can have this kind of intimacy with God, then he says... And all of Israel, I'm going to protect. I'm going to bless Israel and protect them. I'm going to be gracious uh, 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 to them. Uh, you know, I'm going to shine my face on them. I'm going to be gracious, which means I'm going to be gracious to them. Uh, and then, then he says, you know, I'm going to lift up my countenance on them. Like, all right. And give them, uh, and give them peace. And that their name, my name, will be on all of Israel. How much greater can it get, right? They're ready to go. Uh, and when you read uh, the Sinai experience uh, after uh, the golden calf, after the golden calf, they seem to get it. I mean, the beginning of the book of Numbers, Bamidbar, is they're receiving instruction. They seem to follow it. Uh, and, and it's reaching this great crescendo. Uh, of getting ready to actually leave now and go on the journey. Because a careful reading of the uh, book of Exodus, and we know this from our Passover Seder because we say it every single year, right? Uh, In Exodus chapter 6, God told Moses why he was bringing them out of Egypt, okay? Why he was bringing them out of Egypt. And what does he say? And he says here in Exodus chapter 6, in verse 6, uh, he says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you out from their bondage, and I will redeem you. 
with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And so the goal of coming out of Egypt was to get to Eretz Yisrael. The goal of coming out of Egypt uh, was not just to be free, be free from the bondage. No. Uh, and, and it wasn't just be free from the bondage and uh, live for me. No. It was be free from the bondage, live for me, and reach the destination and get to uh, Israel, get to uh, the promised uh, land. And so, step one, they got out of Egypt. Step two, they uh, got entered into uh, you know, covenant with them in a very uh, fantastic kind of way. And now, step three, now we're going to go to uh, the promised land. It's only going to take another few months. You know, that, that was the plan, shall we say, right? Okay, so I, I, this is how it was supposed to be. Now, the crescendo of this is in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10 at the end of the chapter. Numbers chapter uh, 10 at the end of the chapter. Okay, so I, in uh, verse 33 of uh, Numbers chapter 10, Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days, journey, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day, and they set out from the camp. This is all just the way they were told it was supposed to be. They're leaving, the ark is with them. There's the cloud, we're walking with God, it's all looking good. And then, to top it off, it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it came to rest, he said, Return thou, O Lord, to the myriad of thousands uh, of uh, Israel. And so when we open the ark, did you hear it when we were singing it? And so Aaron, Adonai, Vayomer, Moshe, and so on and so forth. That's what we're saying. Every week when we take the uh, Torah out of the ark, we say verse 35. Every single week, right? As long as you've ever come to Beth Messiah congregation on, on Shabbat, you didn't realize it, maybe, but you're singing this verse, okay? Uh, and so when we take the uh, Torah uh, out of the ark and we walk around with it, we are like uh, uh, saying, God, we're following you, like the Ark of the Covenant, right? Like the Ark of the Covenant in their midst, and that's, uh, you know, and, and by seeing the Ark of the Covenant, we're protected, and you're going to bring us uh, to the destination. We, you know, we will fulfill uh, our calling, and so on. And that's why we walk around with it. That's where that all comes from. This concept of leaving Sinai and uh, going on the, going on the, the journey. 
And it's supposed to remind us every week that God is our king, sitting on his throne, and that he is the victor. He is the warrior king who fights the battles uh, and who will get us to the destination. Uh, And so these words, in fact, what's interesting, in the Torah scroll, if you've ever seen a Torah scroll, uh, you know how it's just like line after line after line after line after line. So sometimes some verses uh, are separated, you know, they're poetry because they're indented and things like that. But these two verses, verses 35 and 36, have something a little extra, special, okay? Uh, it looks, uh, it almost looks like parentheses, but it isn't parentheses. It's two what's called inverted nuns, okay? Not nuns, that's nuns, okay? Uh, the letter nun, like the N, nun, right? Uh, and, and they're inverted, uh, as if to... Uh, like, say, hey, everybody, these are really, 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 really special verses. And they really are, because this is, uh, this, this is the great highlight. <laughs> you know, besides the Mount Sinai experience, this is the real highlight, that God is leading us on the journey. And there are a number of other places in the Bible that pick up on Uh, on this verse, on these verses. One of them is a great psalm, which I encourage you to read. Uh, Psalm 68. Okay, let's turn there for just a quick second. Psalm 68. Look at the beginning. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. It comes right from our Torah portion in Bamidbar. And David applies... That great moment in ancient, even in his day, ancient Israelite history, to his own day. He's making an application to his own day. That's important for us to understand because we can do that too. You know, we can make that same application to our own uh, situation and our own day. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad and let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord and exults before him. You know, the picture you get in uh, Numbers chapter 10 and here, you know, uh, uh, think of a movie that has a scene in it, like it can be like from the Middle Ages or from thousands of years ago, where they're all on these horses and they're going into battle and like maybe somebody's carrying a flag or something. You know, I don't want to mention any movies, but, but maybe you can think of one uh, that, that you've seen where here we go and we're, you know, uh, we have the goal. We know that God is on our side and uh, well, I can say for probably uh, in all those movies, it wasn't true. But here it's true that God was really on their side. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, but the point being is that they're going with such confidence because they're trusting God. And remember, I can't remember when it was, but we talked about the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim and how it like, looks like a throne, like God's throne. 
And that's what it looks like. That's what the Ark of the Covenant looked like when they would go into battle. Like the throne of God, they're carrying the chair. Like it's a, the, the, the chariot throne of God. And this was a familiar picture to these people from the ancient world, a very familiar picture. But isn't it interesting that uh, for all of that, uh, we could say godly bravado, look at verse 5. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And, uh, you know, when I was reading this uh, this week, uh, I, uh, I was reading through it and I thought, oh, you know, it'd be really great to like read this whole thing. But then I did realize that it was 35 verses long. and I, I decided I'm not going to read the whole thing. But you read the whole thing. Okay, because it really is empowering. Look at the very end of it. Verses 33, 34, and 35. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times, behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice, ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel, and his strength is in the skies. O God, thou art awesome from thy sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. And so when we're really down, I mean, you know, look at the verses uh, here in verse 5. A father of the fatherless, judge of the widows. Uh, God makes a home for the lonely, leads people out of prison. People who have real needs can hang on to the garment of God and be empowered. And not just be a victim of their circumstances or culture, but hang on to God who is the warrior king. It's a great, it's a great message. Now, so when you come back to Numbers chapter 11, wow, uh, you know, this is, how, this is how the wilderness wanderings are supposed to be. You know, you ever see one of those movies? That, there's a famous movie uh, that I'm not going to say the name of. But it's, it's sort of like, it's about World War II, and it's a, like a fanciful movie about how we really wish it would have ended. Uh, and I'm, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, but it's a really, you know, it's fanciful. It's not a true story. Uh, but it's a very interesting story, because at the end of it, you're kind of like going, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, all the bad guys get it, and the good guys live. You know, it's one of those kind of things. Very interesting. So here, it's kind of like when you get to the end of chapter 10, it's like, yeah, this is how it's supposed to go, right? Uh, and it's too bad that the book of Numbers doesn't just end there, right? But it doesn't end there, right? Uh, and so then we come to chapter 12, okay? All right. You know, in, uh, it's kind of interesting. In, in 2 Samuel, uh, when you come to the 11th chapter, that's where David sins. And I always like to say, chapter 11, bankruptcy, you know? But this is chapter 12, so it doesn't work. Okay. But here in chapter 12, of the book of Numbers, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 11. No, what is chapter 11? What am I saying? It is chapter 11. There you go. Bankruptcy. 
Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of the place was called Teverah because the fire of the Lord burned among them, which means fire, burning, burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Okay, uh, and I'll read the, the, the next verse, which is really the next beginning of the next section, but I'm going to read the next verse anyway. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? Okay, so immediately, immediately, there's... A problem. Now, this is reminiscent of several other times in the Bible where God does a great thing, provides everything necessary, and off we go, and it's too bad we have to read the next chapter, okay, or the next verse in some cases, right? One of them is in the Garden of Eden. One of them is the Garden of Eden, okay? I mean, you know, uh, N.T. Wright uh, writes somewhere uh, that the, uh, the Garden of Eden was sort of where heaven and earth were together. We're like, we're like in one place, you know? The, very, the habitation of God was among the people. Uh, and Adam and Eve were, so to speak, at the very beginning of the creation, like living in heaven. This is it. In the presence of God, an idyllic environment, food to eat, uh, you know, company to keep, uh, all of it, Right? Uh, and he tells them they can eat from any tree in this garden except this one. And of course, they decide they're going to control their own desires, and they're going to eat from this one, okay? Uh, and we know that as a result, as a result of the rebellion, they are uh, forced to leave the garden, and all humanity, so to speak, since that day till now, dwells, we might say, in a wilderness, Humanity, not, not just Adam and Eve or not just Israel. Humanity dwells in a wilderness, not, uh, uh, not uh, anywhere near yet the destiny, uh, the, the, the destination. And so no matter who we are and no matter how wonderful, spiritual, good or bad we may be, we're susceptible to everything that happens in the wilderness. Good things, bad things, whatever, whatever it might be. So that's one, uh, is uh, the, Garden of Is the Garden of Eden, where, uh, you know, God provides just the right thing, and then boom, because of the uh, actions of uh, man, uh, it, all, it becomes much more difficult. You know, with Adam and Eve, very important, remember, God never gave up on them. He didn't, like, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to make a new person. Uh, going to send them uh, you know, away and, and get a start over. No, he doesn't start over. But it becomes much more difficult now for humanity to experience the blessings of God, right? In the third chapter, one of the great blessings is childbearing, right? Became difficult. Tilling the soil and, and bringing forth vegetation and, and all that became much more difficult. And so mankind chose and continues to choose the more difficult road. Okay, then the second one is this passage, this passage right here. You know, basically the story of what happens. 
They're not going right to the promised land. It's not like this great victorious journey to Eretz Israel. They're going to travel for another 38 years, basically going around in circles. Do you know that on this journey, they're not going like on a straight line for 38 years, like it's that long. They're basically sort of just like going around and around and like waiting it out until God's ready to bring them in, until they're ready, then God is ready to bring them into the land. And so, by their own doing, a generation dies in the wilderness. They take the long way. Okay, sometimes God does the long way uh, for a short period of time to just simply protect them. That happens too. But not here. It's, uh, they end up in this wilderness for an extensive, long, difficult period of time. But then there's a third one. There's a third one. You know, when the Messiah arrived on the scene, when the Messiah came, you know the story. He lived, he taught, he died, he rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Boy, haven't we been talking about that? And uh, therefore, as a result, taking his seat on his throne, right? Taking his seat on his throne, he pours out the Ruach so that all of humanity now has the opportunity to follow the Lord, the King, to victory. Kind of like here in, in Numbers, you know? I, but we know what ends up happening. Wouldn't it be great if that was the end of the story? That Yeshua ascends to the right hand of the Father. He sits on his throne. He pours out the Holy Spirit. The world embraces the God of Israel. And there you go. But we know that that is not the case, right? We know that uh, basically when the Ruach was poured out, yes, uh, immediately the people that were right there, yes, uh, people did indeed uh, receive and they begin to tell the story. And what do we read? We read about great difficulty within and without. Ananias and Sapphira, right after all this happens, we see that there, there is corruption in the community of Messiah followers. And we see that the uh, community, the, uh, both the Jewish and the Roman community surrounding them uh, gave them a very difficult uh, time because this world is in this wilderness. Uh, and so we see that uh, even uh, now, uh, when the Ruach was poured out, that still people are rejecting. And even those who receive it I oftentimes have a difficult time uh, living it out, you know, and, it's, and have we ever thought, have you ever wondered uh, if part of the delay of, uh, of Yeshua returning has maybe in part something to do with how we as Messiah followers are living and fulfilling our calling, much like the Israelites not getting there in a few months, but 38 years later, perhaps. Maybe it has something to do uh, with us. Because as you read in the book of Acts, as it unfolds, you see there's all kinds of problems uh, amongst the, uh, uh, the, the believers. And just like today, problems internally, externally, uh, and so on, because of this wilderness uh, environment. So uh, here in Numbers, it kind, of, uh, it kind of shows us, again, once again, just how much God indeed uh, loves us, but 
In this particular rebellion here, where it all comes crashing down, I think we have a lot that we can gain in our own uh, personal situations and in our own lives uh, as, uh, as we read it. So, so again, here in uh, chapter 11, uh, uh, it, it's amazing, and the juxtaposition of the passages is on purpose. I mean, this great moment, this fantastic moment of, of the kingship of God and wonder and power and, and majesty, and the people became like those who complain. You know, that is uh, like, uh, it's a dissonant. It, it, it like shouts at us. Why did they do that? Why does that happen? How come they're not just, yeah, let's go and get to the promised land and follow the Lord? It, you know, uh, it kind of makes sense. Okay, so let's uh, look at this. The people became like those who complain. Well, that's a very interesting phrase, like those who complain. Uh, there's a lot of ways of translating this, okay? Uh, it probably would not be wise to, like, put a lot of weight on, well, they didn't really complain, but it was kind of like they complained, okay? I, I would not put a lot of weight on that because uh, you could translate that a lot of different ways. You could say because they, you could even say the people became, like, because they complained. You know, you could even, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be translated like those who complain. Also, the root of the word, uh, it's only used in a couple of places, but the root of the word uh, you can make a very good case for is the word for mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning, like being really sad, like being very sad about something. Uh, and so I think that's kind of helpful in understanding a little bit about why this is happening. Uh, perhaps it's not just so superficial as to say, well, they complained. But maybe they were very sad and they complained. Maybe they were afraid and they complained. Uh, maybe uh, they, 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 uh, they just, given the human nature, had a very difficult time trusting God for, uh, you know, for, their, for their very lives. And, uh, you know, it's easy for us to look back here and say, uh, oh, how could they do that? Because the reality is, the unseen real is that Yeshua is on the throne for real, okay? And we are the chief of complainers about most things in our lives and act as if there is no king and act as if God is really, really, really far away and drops in every once in a while and gives us a little shove or a little push or a little oomph, uh, you, you know? So what is it about them? Uh, so uh, it's kind of like when you read this whole chapter, which we're not going to do, it's kind of like the period where they came out of Egypt and were going to Mount Sinai. There they complained, right? Uh, they, didn't have, uh, they were afraid that they were actually going to uh, um, die. They thought they were going to die and that they would have no water or food. Uh, and God heard them. He listened to them. And he gave them water, and he gave them food. He gave them quail, and he gave them manna, right? And they were learning how to trust him and so on. And he gave them a lot of leeway. You know, he didn't get angry with them. 
We don't read that he got angry with them. He gave them what they needed, and they get to Mount Sinai. Okay? Here, it's the same almost. We don't read about water, but in the first three verses, we don't read about what they wanted, actually, in the first three verses. Perhaps it was water. But we read in verse 4, sure enough, they wanted meat. While there are a lot of things that are the same, there's one huge difference between that period of time in between Sinai, uh, between uh, coming out of Egypt and Sinai, and now on the other side of Sinai and going to the promised land. There, they were afraid they were going to starve. Here, they didn't want the manna. Here, they didn't like what God had provided for them. He was dropping bread from the sky. And they said, we want meat. So there's a difference. And this uh, angered, uh, this angered uh, uh, God. Okay? So we see, now the people became like those who complain of adversity. Perhaps they were, af- listen, perhaps they were afraid that because the bread is coming from the sky, maybe it'll stop. And we need some kind of control over our environment so we know where our next meal is really coming from. Perhaps they had a very difficult time just trusting that God was going to drop the manna out of the sky. Perhaps they were afraid uh, of of this whole new uh, environment because this was a way of life that they had never lived before. They were used to Egypt. And, you know, let's face it, when it comes to water and food and the, the very basics of, of living, they knew that in Egypt, as bad as it was, they knew where their next meal was coming from. And so forget about all that oppression and terrible things going, at least I know where my next meal's coming from. So let's go back there. Okay, we'll be slaves, but, we'll, but you know, we know where our next meal's coming from. Out here, it's kind of like no man's land, you know? It's kind of like we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You know, they're not looking at it centuries later and looking backwards. They're experiencing it like the way we experience our lives, right? If we could look at our lives after the fact and say, oh, come on, we just hang on because good times are coming, but don't give up. You know, we don't know that right now. You know, we don't know what, what, what the future holds. And in our walk with God, it's kind of like God dropping the manna. We don't know exactly what tomorrow will bring. But you see, what, what they were experiencing was, was a real sensitivity of being vulnerable, of not being able, uh, you know, to control their uh, circumstances. And so God who's giving them what they need, who's, who's revealed himself to them in power, who's given them his word and a way of life, who's given them Moses, who took them out of the land. Uh, now he's angry. He's angry, you know. And what does he do? It says, uh, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp some of the outskirts of the camp. In other words, God is showing great mercy and not destroying them once again, you know, kind of like at the golden calf, you know, uh, people died, but he didn't destroy them. So here he doesn't kill them. He doesn't, and he doesn't judge the majority of them at all. In fact, it says he consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Okay. 
not really where the, the people were. And so it says, and the people cried. I mean, God manifested his anger for them, basically. So they could see that he was not pleased with this. And they said, Moses, do something, right? Uh, and, uh, and so Moses prays, Moses intercedes, uh, and uh, it all subsides. Uh, and the name of the place, therefore, is called Burning. Uh, Tavera, because of the fire which, uh, uh, of the Lord which burned among them. Now, those three verses are kind of like a model of what happens for the next 38 years. You know, the people are going to rebel. Moses will intercede for them. Uh, God will be angry and he will judge, but he won't destroy them. Uh, but what we see is they are on a road to oblivion. Because what's going to happen in the next couple of chapters, the people are not really going to change. And what's going to happen is they're not going to trust God and he's going to give that generation, not all of Israel, but that generation, a death sentence. Uh, and they'll die uh, in, the, in the wilderness. And so uh, this is a real turning point uh, in the story and a very important moment for us. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses recalls this. Uh, uh, when he is uh, explaining uh, to uh, the children of Israel uh, at the other end, you know, 40 year, 38 years later, he's exp- when he explains how they were rebellious in the wilderness in the ninth chapter of, uh, of Deuteronomy. And so he, he says to them, so, so make sure that you follow in the way of the Lord and don't be rebellious like your fathers in the wilderness, Right? I uh, don't let this happen to you. And uh, that's what he tells them. So this, this is uh, this uh, moment. Now, there's some other things we can observe uh, here. If you go back to chapter 10 and you look at verse 29, this is uh, where um, Moses is trying to convince, remember Yitro, he goes by several different names. He's trying to convince him to go on the journey with them, but he doesn't. But this is what we read. What Moses says to him. In verse 29, then Moses said to Hovav, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father in law, We are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do you good, for the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. The Lord has promised good concerning Israel. That is very poignant because on the other side of this great statement about the reign of God and how God is leading them uh, uh, to victory, uh, uh, we see here in uh, verse uh, 4, okay? Or let me see here, wait a second. Uh, Yeah, in verse 4. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires... Uh, and also the sons of Israel wept again, saying, Who will give us meat, uh, meat to eat? Okay? Uh, so uh, what, is, uh, what is interesting here uh, is uh, that they're looking at what God has provided, and they're saying, God says, I promise good concerning them. And now we see that what they're... They're, in, they're not receiving it as good, but it's a bad situation. You know, it is a bad way in which uh, we are living. So you have the rabble. Isn't that an interesting word? 
uh, uh, in Hebrew, safsuf, safsuf is, is that word. And so uh, uh, Jacob Milgram, who is a, his, uh, his expertise is mostly in Leviticus, but he also writes a great commentary on the book of, of Midbar. He says, safsuf, it sounds like riffraff. <laughs> you know, just the sound of it. So he says, the riffraff, right? Uh, who were among them, uh, had greedy desires. Uh, and also the sons of Israel wept again, saying, who will give us meat to eat? Okay, so I, literally in Hebrew, it doesn't say greedy desires. It says desirous desires, like emphasizing they had desires. They wanted things. And the Israelites, too, the uh, riffraff who were with them, and, uh, and they themselves, they had things they wanted. They knew what was good for them. They knew what they needed. Uh, and it's not like they're saying we don't believe in God or something like that. But they didn't want to do it God's way because they had certain desires and they had the right to those desires. For the Israelites, perhaps they could say, well, we're Israelites. We belong to God. God doesn't want us eating bread from heaven. He wants us eating meat. And so these Israelites, perhaps we could say, you know, they were listening to the riffraff. They were listening to the wrong voices. They were living uh, somewhat, we could, we could say, hedonistically, or at least in their desires. Because it's important to understand when it says that, that they had, des they had desirous desires. In Hebrew, when uh, it doesn't matter about the form of the words, but when a word like repeats itself like that, it's like really accentuating. They really had desires. They wanted what they wanted, and they knew best. Right? Okay. They knew that if they were going to live, they needed meat, and they knew that they need. Uh, and as we'll see, they need some form of protection. They need, as you'll see later on, they need someone besides Moses. They need a different kind of leader. They need a different kind of food. Uh, and, it did, and their expectations were not being met. And they continuously, uh, and they continuously grumbled. So here they were. They were vulnerable in Egypt. But perhaps they didn't really realize it. But now they're really like in the middle of nowhere. And the only way they're going to live is if they trust God. And so by having their daily supply of fish and watermelon, you know, and leeks and onions, forget about all the hard work and all that. Without that daily supply, what's really going to happen to us? What's really going to, going to be? Fortunately for us, in Deuteronomy in the 8th chapter, it's revealed what's happening, what, what God's motivation is, why he's giving them mana, why, why things are happening the way they are, right? So Moses is teaching that second generation this 40 years later, and it's great for us. In the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, it says, All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Very important. Remember it. Remember what took place. 
these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Total, unequivocal, 100% dependence on God. Without your own machinations, without your own systems, without your uh, own figuring it out, but total dependence on him. And if they would totally depend on him and put one step in front of the other, they would have gotten to the promised land without all of the tumult, without all of the headaches. And aren't we that way too, right? In our lives, God is leading us to a destination. What happened to these people? They forgot what the destination was. They forgot the destination is getting to the promised land. God will get us there. They had a very difficult time believing that in their current situation, they were really going to be able to get there. And they knew what they wanted. And so it became more important to them to get what they needed right now, here and now, than just follow the way of the Lord and reach the destination. That is us. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul it's a little self-reflective here. Uh, and he talks about, generally speaking, in, in the chapter, how uh, his goal, you know, is to bring the message of a Messiah to Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of people, and that whatever it takes, he's going to do, and that he's going to limit himself and, and uh, be real disciplined so that he doesn't mess up along the way. So he says at the end of the chapter, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way... As not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he's saying, in everything, in the way that I conduct my personal being and in, uh, and in the work that I do, like not taking money and things like that, you know, he says, in every way, I live and act in such a way to complete the task that God has given me. You know, it didn't mean that he didn't want an easier life. He was not a uh, self-hating kind of person or thinking that the more I suffer, uh, if I suffer more, that means greater. You know, the point is to suffer as much as possible in order to be loved by God. No, 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 no. But he understood that in order to fulfill his calling, that, that there was something far greater coming that made uh, his discipline and even the sufferings tolerable because he knew what was coming. 
That's why he uses phrases like, you know, I press on for the upward call of Messiah Yeshua. I, you know, I, it's why, why, why he says, I haven't reached it yet. I haven't gotten there yet. Um, uh, you know, things, uh, things of, that, of that nature. Uh, very important. But now look what he says in chapter 10, at the beginning of chapter 10. So now he says, you know, I live uh, in such a way that I have an aim. I know where I'm going and I'm disciplined to get there. Right. And then he says, for I do not want you. It's too bad that chapter 10 begins here, the big 10. For I do not want you to want, be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and, the, and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking there, there from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Messiah. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. And he goes on and he's going to, des he's going to describe it. and says, don't be like that. What he's doing is he's saying that our life is kind of like being in the wilderness. And you know how they were undisciplined and they complained all the time? Don't be like that. But follow the way of the Lord. Because that's the key uh, to, uh, to getting there. Right? So he says, uh, nor let, you know, let us not be idolaters. Let us not act immorally. Let us not try the Lord. Let us not grumble. Uh, and he says in verse 11 of chapter 10, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. In other words, he's saying, this is all written because now, this is all written because this is the, this is the beginning of the end, you know? And, uh, and, and so by all means, let us be focused uh, and move forward, okay? Now, there's a famous verse now that comes that, that you all know because it probably, you probably, someone probably quoted it to you or you read it uh, at a particular time of vulnerability of temptation, okay? But this is where it is, all right? When it says, Therefore let him who stands, uh, let, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay. So, usually when we're thinking about that verse, and there's nothing wrong with this, you know, we're thinking about, oh, there's some kind of moral temptation, you know, I'm going to fall in some kind of moral way or ethical way or you know, something like that to do damage to, to you know, to, my, to myself uh, and my relationship with God. Yes, that's true. You know, nothing wrong with that. But may I suggest that the temptation goes beyond that. And the temptation here is to focus on our desirous desires, like in verse 4. And I know what I want, and I'm going to get what I want because... I deserve what I want, and it's good for me, and we rationalize it, and so I'm going to go after it, and because I know what brings security. I know what I need to get through this life. After all, if I don't save, if I don't have that retirement fund, I don't know what I'm going to do. If I don't get that promotion, I don't know what I'm going to do. If I don't get that job, if I don't get that spouse, 
if my kids don't turn out the way I think they ought to, whatever it might be, and I'm, you know, I'm going to make it happen because I know what is right, right? Or other things that are out of our control, like our health, uh, you know, or other poverty, uh, uh, particular kinds of oppression that we might uh, be enduring, right? I know what I got to do to, you know, to either get through this or, but what happens when we become vulnerable, when we come to the place, when we say, I can't handle it, I can't figure it out, isn't that the place where God really begins to do a work inside of us? Yes. It's when we stop figuring it out and we say, okay, Lord, I'm surrendering to you, right? The real temptation is to control the environment in which we live. Whether we're talking about falling to some moral thing or just doing whatever I want, you know? Now, that doesn't mean that everything we want is bad or wrong. No, it doesn't mean that. But it means being dependent on God. And God is constantly teaching us that. Constantly teaching us to depend on him. If we are in a, if you, me, if we are in a situation right now where we cannot control the outcome, we're worried and we're anxious, may I suggest that a very healthy way is to say, you know, perhaps the Lord is changing me. Maybe he's changing me and he's making me into the person who, who depends on him more, who's, who's, who's quiet before the Lord more, who's, who's maybe a little more sensitive to his leading, you know, by having, by being forced to depend on him. That's what God was doing with our ancestors. He forced them into a situation where they would learn to depend on him because that, w- that would lead to good, okay? And so this is really a, 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 you know, a real reflective thing for us. We face challenges of wilderness life, disappointment, regret, disease, broken relationships, poverty, oppression. Oh, I have a whole list, right? Uh, it does not mean that we have sinned or done something wrong. It happens because, remember what I said about the Garden of Eden, the first one of those experiences? The whole world is in a wilderness. We live in the wilderness of this world, and we are susceptible to everything that everybody is susceptible to. The fact that we know the Lord does not keep us from diseases, does not keep us from poverty, does not keep us from oppression, does not keep us from all kinds of worldly temptations uh, or things that are out of our control. But what we have is the God of Israel who navigates us through it if we would just surrender to him and yield to him and live his way. But that is like the human condition is rebellion. That's why at the end of Deuteronomy, we read, I've given you, I've given you uh, life and blessing, right? Or death and adversity. I'm trying to figure out, wait, 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 which one do I want, right? Uh, but we choose death and adversity. We do it all the time. But you see, we now have, we have a way of life. We have Yeshua. We have the Ruach. May we live and believe the unseen real of the real reality that Yeshua is sitting on his throne and he is guiding and leading us through the wilderness so that we will indeed reach the destination. Never lose sight of the destination and recognize that whatever, wherever I'm at in life, God, lead, God is leading me 
to that destination. Like, like we read the author of Hebrews said, keep your eyes fixed on Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith. Right? You know, in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's reflective again. And he says this uh, about his own life. Right? Uh, he says, um, because in verse 7 of uh, chapter uh, 12, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I've received, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger uh, of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Messiah may dwell in me. Power is perfected in weakness. Uh, and so when we are the most vulnerable is the time when we draw the closest to God and have the most intimacy with him, and he will see us through to the end. You know, uh, and as we'll see finally in the book of Acts, you know, uh, the day is coming. As Peter says in the third chapter of the book of Acts, uh, he says this, Repent and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Yeshua, the Messiah, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. And so we look forward indeed to that. Do not get bogged down thinking this is all there is. There is a great destiny that awaits us. Keep moving forward toward it and recognize that whatever is taking place in our lives, recognize that as I depend on God for my life, yes, he will indeed get me there. We don't have time for it, but our Haftorah portion in Zechariah chapter 3 is very important in this where you have this uh, high priest, Joshua, and God says, change his clothes. Put new clothes on him. Put a new turban on his head, right? Uh, because I have not given up on my people. And he rebukes Satan, right? Get away from my servant, Joshua, the high priest. I'm clothing him with clothes of majesty. And the passage goes on to say that Joshua and the people around him this is not Joshua from the book of Joshua, later on, right? That they're a symbol. They're a symbol of the servant who is to come, of the Messiah. And that is indeed what he has done for us. He has redeemed us out of Egypt. He has redeemed us out of bondage. He has given us new clothes. He's given us a way of life. He's realized it within us. He's internalized it within us. He himself, Yeshua himself, dwells within us. His Torah dwells within us. And if we would just yield to him in our lives, keep our eyes focused on that destination, we will see the good things that God will be in our lives. And we will be encouraged and we will be able to stay above the fray in whatever comes our way. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, I just pray that we might uh, be encouraged by this. Lord, the reality is is that the king of Israel is indeed sitting on a throne, but, our, but we're all clouded by, by stuff and things and 
wants and desires and fears, Lord, I pray that we would not just be looking for some kind of superficial security, but know that you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, I pray that we would indeed repent and turn to you, Lord, and live in your calling upon our lives. Lord, just as Moses told Jethro, you promised good for Israel, meaning the the end, the promised land. Thank you, Lord, that our destiny is resurrection. Our destiny is to live forever, to live forever in you in a restored and renewed heaven and earth. Lord, may we realize that that is the destiny. The struggle of this life is not the goal. It's the process. Lord, the children of Israel in the wilderness were in process. You were teaching them. You were birthing them. Lord, I pray that we might understand that in our own lives and that we might yield to you, that we might begin to learn how to yield to you and trust you and say no to that thing that I know down deep in my heart is not right, but I know I can get a good meal out of it. But I'm going to trust you for it. Lord. I'm going to trust you for my needs. Lord, I pray that if we're fearful, if we're hurting, or whatever situation we may be in today where we're just really scared because we can't control what's going to happen, Lord, I pray that we might have a renewed hope, a renewed uh, recognition that uh, we're safe in your arms. We're safe even in the wilderness. We are forever in your loving care. We thank you and we pray in Messiah's name.